Welcome to Spotlights, the podcast for the domestic abuse sector. In this series, Safe Lives is shining a spotlight on people who are affected by domestic abuse who are also experiencing mental health problems. In this podcast, Colette talks to Dr. Kylie Trevelyan for the Women's Mental Health Department at King's College. Kylie, you're based in the section of Women's Mental Health at King's College. Can you tell us more about the type of research that's being carried out in your department regarding domestic abuse and mental health? Yes, so I joined the section 10 years ago and at that point um, Professor Louise Howard, who leads our section, um, was thinking about moving towards research around domestic violence and in that time we've done a lot of um, work um, in that area. So for example, and, and thinking about where we are now, we've got some very interesting projects that are, that are going on currently. Um, we have a PhD student, Roxanne, um, who is looking at um, piloting the impact of a mental health program, which includes a component on education around domestic violence for women in Ethiopia. Um, because there's high levels of uh, domestic violence in, in that kind of setting and they're wanting to think about addressing and providing some support. It might be based lower level, but appreciating the lower resource settings that they're working in. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also got a PhD student, Karen Bailey, who's looking at um, developing a, um, a complex intervention to address issues of interpersonal abuse, trauma and substance uh, use among women. One of our colleagues, Fraser Anderson, we're doing some collaborative work with her, looking at um, women's um, experiences of interpersonal abuse and early mother-child interactions. Mm-hmm. And uh, Louise and my colleague, Sean have recently um, been awarded a new violence, abuse and mental health network, which, will, which is bringing together experts from a range of different disciplines, um, and it's looking to enhance policy and research areas in this field. So I um, started here as a research assistant with Louise on a project which was looking at assessing, first of all, the issues around identifying and addressing domestic violence in mental health Mm. services. Um, And I was fortunate enough within that project to do a PhD part-time. And within that, I was really able to explore these issues in detail. Um, What Generally, what we found from that work is that... um, Many people that have severe um, or chronic mental health needs um, have experiences of domestic violence and that unfortunately at the time, and I think it's still a factor to a degree now, um, mental health services didn't have very robust policies or, or strategies for addressing these issues. So there's when we started doing this work, we found that about only between 10 and 30% of cases of domestic violence were being identified Mm. by mental health services but yet we think you know there are some figures that suggest maybe you know um, in our literature review we found around like about a third of all women and and maybe a third of men Mm. um, might be reporting with these issues Mm. um, but they're just not being picked up so we've spent time within our section looking at why that is so what are the barriers for staff and what might be the barriers for service users in talking about these issues. Um, I've been working on some small um, evaluation projects Mm -hmm. to look at how we might improve the response of mental health services based on this work. 
Um, so as part to inform that, we did, we've done some surveys with staff looking at some of their um, experiences of asking about the domestic violence and also responding. And we've looked at the literature to see what kind of treatments might be available um, for people um, with uh, chronic or severe mental health problems. And at, that, at this particular uh, point in time, there's a limited evidence base, specifically around supporting people who are engaged with mental health services. But some of the things that are coming out from the uh, reviews of the literature on interventions is the value of having psychoeducation in, in any kind of treatments, looking at the causes and consequences of domestic violence, but specifically having treatments that are focusing on ongoing risks. Um, the development of cognitive and emotional skills in relation to helping people address uh, the trauma mm. symptoms related to, to their experiences and models that are looking at building on survivor strengths. Um, we've also uh, worked with a, a group, so a third sector organisation against violence and abuse were developing a programme of work looking to improve the response at a strategic level for mental health services to domestic and sexual violence. And my colleague Sean and I did an evaluation of that project. <clears throat> what we found before that, it was based in two trusts, one in uh, London and one um, in a more rural area. We found that the responses by the trusts were quite inconsistent. Um, for example, one of the trusts had a policy, the others had one in development, but there wasn't a clear strategy um, in active at the time. The work that the that Ava did was to try and work with the trust uh, senior team and leadership to um, develop uh, protocols informed by the NICE guidelines mm. around domestic violence. Um, she also uh, looked to deliver training for staff and to uh, establish uh, train the trainer program, so giving more intensive training to certain members of staff around these issues so they could then continue the education for their teams mm. once the project finished. And um, they also did a lot of work in helping staff when they're identifying domestic violence to refer on uh, with local specialist third sector agencies. And at the end of that project, we found that there was a, uh, increased um, access, staff were reporting they had increased access to support around responding to issues of mm. domestic and sexual violence. But there was a need to really embed that as part of mm. core business. So it's a huge range of projects that you're undertaking at the moment in the department. Um, it, it's, it's really impressive and there's so much to kind of ask you more about. Um, I know some of your past work has included conducting a systematic review on the relationship between domestic abuse and mental disorders. So I guess it's just kind of a, a basic starting point. Could you tell us a bit more about what you see to be the relationship between those two things? Yeah, so we, uh, it was a few years ago, we wanted to have a look at what was the current evidence base for this. And the ideal situation at that time would have been able to do a direct comparison between people um, that have uh, mental health uh, concerns and their experiences of violence against people who don't have mental mm. health concerns because that allows us to really explore are there increased risks or vulnerabilities for these groups. So we looked at the international literature in this field and what we found is that a kind of across the diagnostic spectrum of what we understand um, 
classifications for mental health problems that both men and women who have experiences of mental health problems are reporting high rates of mm -hmm. domestic violence and they're showing increased vulnerability to, to these experiences when compared to people who don't have mental health right. um, problems. When we look at what the, the kind of causal pathways of that are, it's, there's less evidence kind of following people up um, you know, over long periods of time in order to see which, whether the violence precedes um, mental health um, mm. problems or is, is a result of that. But what we, what we can see from the literature that's out there is it's likely to be a bi-directional relationship. So there is evidence out there that people who are, who are in violent relationships, it has a very detrimental impact on their mental mm. health and it may lead to the development of mental health problems, but also that people that have mental health problems, they may be vulnerable to experiencing domestic violence. Yeah. And in the wider literature for people with chronic and severe mental health problems, we see that they're at risk of a increased risk for a range of, of violent mm -hmm. experiences and in interpersonal abuse compared to the general population. Yeah, and I imagine that in the analysis, it then gets quite tricky to, to try and separate things out because people don't present with single issues. People are, you know, there's a, there's a complexity around the different issues that people would have experienced and the different kind of harms they might have experienced over their lifetime. Yeah, and I think one of the things that we, there is a lot of research out there looking at victimisation, um, that's the phrase that they use, experiences, but not, you know, increasingly there has been, but, but in the past, there's not been much work teasing out what type of experiences yeah. there are because within that there's there's a lot of things it could be a, a, a burglary um, you know a, 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 or a, a mugging but there's also the interpersonal and domestic yeah. and sexual violence elements to it and um, in the past they were kind of clustered very much together but one of the the things that we are keen to do within this section is think about you know those repeat violence experiences by people in interpersonal and intimate relationships which potentially has a bigger impact on mental health yeah. over the long term than say a single isolated event. So um, could we think in particular about um, victims of domestic abuse who have who will be classed as having chronic enduring and severe mental health issues so what do we know specifically about their experience? So my colleague Hind Khalifa, who's based in our section, she, as part of her PhD work, she was able to um, draw on the what used to be the British Crime Survey, but now the Crime Survey for England and Wales. She was able to draw on that data from the general population, which asks about experiences of domestic violence, and compare that to a group of um, mental health service users um, who have chronic and severe uh, mental health concerns using the same questions that they asked in both surveys, what she was able to tease out is that um, the people with chronic and severe mental health problems are reporting higher experiences of domestic and sexual violence within the past mm. year, and they're at a greater risk than people without, than the general population. Mm. But also that um, those people that with chronic um, and severe mental health concerns who have experienced abuse when you compare their perceptions and experiences to people without these issues but have experienced domestic violence, you see that their, their perception of the assault 
is that it was much more serious. Mm -hmm. They report more injuries. They're, they're feeling more emotionally affected by the experience that's happened to them. When you adjust for other factors that might influence um, their, ex their experiences, you find that people with chronic and severe mental health concerns are less likely to uh, attend hospitals um, in response to their injuries following mm -hmm. their assault or seek to seek medical attention and that they are less likely to be implementing safety strategies in comparison to the general population. So I think there's key things that mental health services can do there to support people mm -hmm. with um, these issues, to think about you know, supporting their safety and helping them um, get support for their you know, health needs in relation to this. So also thinking that for IDVAs as well, when they are working with clients to think about risk and safety not being an absolute but it being subjective to each person's experience so um, you might have one client that's able to employ certain stra strategies but another client that doesn't feel able to and to be thinking about risk and need in, in that way rather than in a kind of static risk factors. And I think one of the things that we found or I found with my PhD work when interviewing service users is that there is also a lot of stigma and shame that we might see you know across people with experiences of uh, domestic violence but that there is that potentially you know double discrimination of the concern that they because of their mental health needs they may not be believed mm. in their narratives if they're talking to people about what's happened to them and so one of the concerns also for mothers is that if they're disclosing their experiences because of their mental health needs that services might question their parenting capabilities um, and that might become a key barrier for them in disclosing um, what's happening to them. Yeah so for the individual they can feel like the the factor that will really influence safeguarding responses is their mental health rather than you know the, the trauma and the abuse that they're experiencing. Absolutely. We tend to hear that the detection rate of domestic abuse is relatively low amongst psychiatric services and at the beginning you said that your department's been like looking at that um, in you know that issue. So what are your thoughts on the barriers? Where, like where are they and, and what are those? What do those barriers look like? Yeah, so we did some surveys with staff um, a few years ago looking at what their practices are around identifying issues of domestic violence. And what we found is that um, there's not generally staff are not employing routine inquiry about issues of domestic violence in their practice and that many of them feel that they don't really have the confidence to know how to respond if someone makes a disclosure or that they're aware of local or national services to support people who've, who have experienced domestic violence. And when we've delved into that a bit um, more deeply by doing interviews with staff and thinking about the, the, stru the um, structures of, of services, we find that you know traditionally there's uh, mental health professionals have not been trained around issues of domestic and sexual violence, mm -hmm. so they aren't sure about how to start that conversation. Overall, they generally know that this is an issue and they see that it does have an impact on their well-being of the service users that they're seeing but 
because they don't feel they have the confidence and skills to support them sensitively when they've made a disclosure or to refer them to the right services, it acts as a barrier for them starting that conversation. Mm. What we've also found when we, we've worked and done interviews with service users and professionals together is that they talk a lot about how the current structure within mental health services is very much on a biomedical model. So the focus is on identifying and treating presenting symptoms. And the overriding focus on management of symptoms means that there's little room for exploring the underlying factors that are affecting people's mental health and why they might be um, developing these symptoms. So I think another issue is that there's a little consideration of the role of domestic violence in precipitating or exacerbating mental health problems um, within the, the current uh, format of the the assessments um, and treatment models, which means that it's, that creates another barrier to exploring these issues. You, you can see that, that that mindset and that model of working, how that might play into um, medical professionals not um, undertaking work in domestic abuse or finding out more about that, because in their mind they might be thinking, if the symptoms are domestic abuse, then I, I might refer to a domestic abuse service, but it's not it's not within my remit to be incorporating that into my conversations with a um, with a, a patient, but that's that's a shame because of course you know a, a patient is the whole person and they may really want to talk to their mental health you know pr practitioners about what's going on at home. Yeah, and I think you know it's encouraging that professionals themselves are you know they do see those limitations and actually they do see it as part of their remit, but it, it actually the. The, the way that the current structures make it difficult for them to even you know have the time to explore these issues or the scope within that and I think you know one of the things that that would be would help these things is to think about in training staff um, in knowing how to ask sensitively and how to immediately respond in an appropriate way and then to get people access to specialist services so there's a, a role for domestic abuse services to kind of get to know their mental health teams and to um, empower them, I guess, and equip them to, to do some, to start those conversations with people that they're, they're seeing. Yeah, I think that can be very powerful. And one of the programmes of work that we've done is try to bring the two sectors together. Also, the, the NICE guidelines on domestic violence talk a lot about you know thinking about training programs of trust working with the voluntary and community specialist organizations to develop a training package mm. that's informed and has the right um, you know can impart the right knowledge to mm. professionals um, but also to sort of be working with the teams to create commissioning pathways um, to ensure that the, the resources the, the clear pathways are there so you know as it is when we started this research is you know the initial conversation isn't happening mm. and as a consequence of that it's not being picked up mm. service users because of the part the discussions we had in the previous question I have a lot of barriers to starting that conversation find it difficult to know how to initiate the conversation 
they're also sometimes picking up on the sense from professionals that they're not so certain sure. with these issues and they're understanding that the the focus is very much on just the symptoms that they're presenting with at that assessment um, so they're not being able to help think about formulating a, a, a treatment plan or support plan for them. You were saying earlier about um, co-leading a project to increase the capacity of mental health trust to effectively respond to domestic and sexual um, violence. So I'm just wondering what you would see as a good response by a trust. Do you have any examples of what that might look like? I think there's some key things there. One of the things that um, would be very useful is improved information sharing between agencies. So, you know, having some clear protocols and methods between agencies about sharing information because people are often engaged with many services and in order to develop a kind of holistic coordinated response, it would be important to be able to, you know, share information in order to make the the care plan as as holistic as mm. it should be for people. Um, also, I think again I mentioned commissioning. You know, thinking about a coordinated commissioning response um, which works across relevant agencies. So, you know, in many settings there are numerous local voluntary sector organisations that have been working for years in this area and are specialists in in that. Um, in supporting people with domestic violence and you know having a, a commissioning pathway that staff can utilize to refer people to these services would be very important again based on what we talked about I think training is key to this um, and I think help you know again this is reinforced by the NICE guidelines that health and social care practitioners who are involved in caring or assessing people um, should be trained in issues of, of violence and abuse and domestic violence um, and should be able to feel confident to start the conversation and to know how to build a, a, tr a form of support around mm -hmm. individuals um, and working with those expert local agencies to develop these training. To facilitate that then routine inquiry should be something that's um, used and utilised within services and making sure that staff are routinely inquiring. But another key part that I found from the projects that we've done is issues around documentation and clear documentation in notes, clinical case notes, about the discussions that have been had about the formulation of treatment plans. So there's work that's been done showing that you know the reporting can be quite patchy so it's hard for people to know you know, if they're seeing someone, what might have been explored in the past, is that if there's any kind of uh, support around the vi the domestic violence or the, the issues for that. Um, and then that makes it very difficult for people to know, you know, if it's been addressed. Um, and also for service users as well, there's a concern that they have to keep maybe repeating these mm. traumatic experiences to many people um, and not having a kind of coordination around um, you know what their plan is and um, I think that would be very useful and then finally having a clear referral pathway so if the trusts themselves have a, a domestic violence policy which has all these things outlined um, and they're working towards uh, you know, 
ensuring that those are in place, I think mm. that would be really uh, game changer, really. I, mean, I think in terms of recording, something that we do um, see for domestic abuse workers, um, a lack of clarity sometimes around when somebody has a, a diagnosis of a mental health condition and what that means in terms of how it's going to impact on, on risk. And when there is um, kind of self-reported mental health symptoms, but not necessarily a diagnosis, which means a care plan or treatment, and just a lack of clarity around that, both for um, people experiencing domestic abuse, but also alleged perpetrators of domestic abuse. And that can make it quite difficult sometimes for domestic abuse workers to navigate so what services is this person getting or should they be getting and, and who do I kind of report my, my concerns to? So um, I was just thinking that that recording issue could be really significant for frontline workers as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, with, with thinking about the MARACs that, you know, exist, you know, making sure there's been some work done previously showing that, you know, a, attendance at those meetings by mental health um, representatives might again be patchy in certain areas and that would if that was improved that would definitely help provide and support that coordinated response mm. um, and those shared learnings and something that um, Louise and I did a few years ago was when we did our review of the evidence base to see what kind of uh, treatments might be available for people with um, chronic or severe mental health concerns and experiences of domestic violence. Um, as I mentioned, there was a limited um, evidence base there, but we saw some good developing work from primary care settings and also the community about domestic violence advocacy. So we looked to adapt a model um, and to implement that within mental health services. So we had a, uh, some IDFA services uh, within the local community when we're with, uh, around the same area as the mental health teams that we were working with. And what we did is bring, um, second a couple of the IDFAs to this project. They received some training from our team early on about how to support people with um, more chronic and severe mental health problems also getting them to become familiar with the structures in mental health mm. services, what, what terminologies and language they use. Um, and then what we did is to embed them within the community mental health teams with the professionals with the idea of them to have a kind of reciprocal um, education so that the mental health professionals could help to um, continue the learnings of the advisors in how to, um, you know, work with mental health services or, or work with um, service users who have um, mental health needs, but also that the the um, IDFAs could really help to train up staff about issues of domestic violence, um, which was something, again, the same thing we've seen from our surveys, that staff had lack of training, they didn't feel confident, they were worried about opening a Pandora's box and not knowing how to respond sensitively. So the IDFAs could work with them. They did regular training with staff. So they had tra some intensive training at the beginning of the program delivered by an experienced clinical psychologist. But then the IDFAs continued for the two years that the project was running to educate staff around specific issues. And staff kind of came to them with certain things that they were 
getting aware of in their practice that they wanted advice on so like housing support for people experiencing domestic violence honor related violence and um, and that what works really effectively here is that the staff you know with the training we're starting to ask people more regularly to explore these issues of domestic violence by starting that conversation service users felt able and it was a safe place to mm. disclose and then because they the IDVAs were embedded within the team they had a named person on and, and a professional that they could go to immediately to discuss the case and if necessary the advocate could take them on and provide advocacy for them the advocates in reflecting on their practice noticed that they are working their general advocacy work tends to be a bit longer with these client groups and that they have because they have maybe more needs than they might see in their community um, population. Um, but that, you know, they could really by for themselves being embedded in the service, it really helped them think about how they could um, support the whole, the whole holistic needs of service users by working with the mental health staff to support, you know, to provide the advocacy work they're doing, but also the mental health support that they might need. And then, Recently, I was involved in an evaluation in a North London Mental Health Trust looking to do a similar thing. Um, and again, we saw that you know, with the training package and embedding the advisors in services, it did make a difference in making uh, mental health professionals feel confident to, to start these discussions and know where to refer. And the more people have those conversations, you know, the more confident they're going to be at picking up more subtle signs of like coercive control because they'll just become much more fluent in the language of, of you know, domestic abuse and ex exploring it with somebody. I was thinking also what a huge benefit it must have been for those IDVA services to have those IDVAs take part because that learning being embedded within a mental health service, they'll be able to take that and apply to all their future clients but their colleagues as well and just the conversations they would be having with their, with their colleagues around the work that they're doing how that would really enrich their colleagues work with their client groups as well so just huge kind of beneficial um, you know knock-on benefits from that so I think that's a really lovely example of like some like promising practice that we might be able to start thinking okay how could we replicate that in other areas of the country so I wondered whether there are other kind of pockets of like emerging promising practice that you're seeing in this area? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I know that Safe Lives do a similar kind of uh, work of embedding um, it for services within A&E settings, so more acute settings. Yes. And I think, you know, increasingly, these are small research projects that we've been doing in the mental health side and, and Safe Lives are doing a bigger scale in A&E but they really do seem to be working effectively and um, they are helping to at least we see from the, the smallest evaluations that we're doing to change practice and increase confidence um, so I think those models work really well and thinking about how to uh, ensure sustainability of these kind of programs I think what's really critical is is making sure that there is, um, you know, support for these interventions and these uh, projects at the very senior level of the trust. So it needs to be both a bottom-up and a top-down approach, um, to making sure that it's it becomes part of that 
the this response to domestic violence becomes part of core business for um, for, for services um, in who have um, who have clients that come to them who have mental health needs um, that this becomes part of the core agenda and that you know the the organisation itself are um, you know a, a safe and open space to be to be facilitating those discussions but also that the staff that are working there are trained and feel confident to um, you know pick up these issues and to get people to the right places so uh, you and your team must have spoken to lots of people that have experienced domestic abuse I'm, I'm wondering what it is that they say about their experiences as services and what they would like and what they don't want from uh, a response yeah, so what we see is that service users do want to be, they do want their health professionals to be asking these them about experiences of domestic violence. And I talked before about needing, you know, someone to initiate that conversation. We see from the literature that people who have experienced violence feel more confident to disclose to a health professional than, say, the police or other um, services. So. You know the health sector are a critical person to be starting and helping to facilitate disclosures what service users want is that you know for staff to be asking um, these questions but also to be acknowledging to be aware you know coming to that point again about training to know what what domestic violence is and how that manifests so people have said that you know they've had they you know professionals have come to see them when they're at home or with their partner or the abusive person and that they haven't picked up on those behaviours. You talked about the coercive control, there's mm. more subtle behaviours of maybe being missed sometimes. Um, also by staff talking about these issues, people have told us that sometimes it's been hard for them to identify that they're experiencing these things because of those subtle coercive behaviours. It can be very hard for people to understand what's happening and particularly we see that abusers may often tell people when they've got mental health problems that this is just all in your head and this isn't really happening in your own well and so they start to really question whether this is happening but if staff are able to talk to them about this is what domestic violence is these are the kind of behaviors is this something, you know, we know it affects a lot of people. Is this something you might have experienced? I think they feel is very important. But interestingly, although service users are quite identify the importance of starting this discussion, when we talk to staff, some of them are concerned about routinely asking in case they might offend people who haven't had these experiences by asking them if, if they have been affected. And also that worry about potentially re-traumatising people by 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 you know raising these issues, but the service users themselves tell us that actually they want to talk about it. And for those that don't have these experiences, they are recognise that this is a factor that affects many people and it has an impact on their well-being. And so they wouldn't feel offended if they're asked these issues. And actually, they think that it's important that it is routinely asked. So I think that's an important point to convey to professionals that, you know, both those that do and don't have those experiences think it's important to be raising the topic. In relation to this is what the evidence base currently suggests to us. And we, we've done 
you know, we have engaged with many service users, but there are still some groups who aren't represented both um, in the research literature, and that's thinking about sort of transgender groups. There's, when I talked about the prevalence figures earlier, and there is a lack of literature around there for these groups with um, within the context of <clears throat> mental health service users or people with chronic and mental health needs. Um, and But we see from some of the literature in the general population that these groups are particularly vulnerable to these issues. Um, and similarly, some other marginalised groups are maybe not so well represented in the, the research that's out there to date. Increasingly, there is a focus um, on these groups and trying to um, get a better picture of their experiences, but it's still something that needs to be worked on. I think it's a really good point that we're thinking about victims of domestic abuse who are experiencing mental health problems as a, a hidden or marginalised group, but they're not a homogenous group. And within that, there'll be people that have other factors which put them at even further disadvantage and make them even more removed and hidden from services because of these uh, other you know, factors around their identity. So there's a couple of projects that King's College are involved in which sound really, really interesting. So I wanted to ask you a bit more about them. So um, the For Baby's Sake programme that you're involved in and also Lara, could you tell us a bit more about what those are and what they aim to do? So the For Baby's Sake programme is, um, being, is being implemented, uh, it was developed and implemented by the Stefano Foundation and they have recognised, um, they're thinking about this idea of kind of um, uh, adverse childhood events and the impact that that can have over the life course and affecting the children's future families. So what they did as part of this programme is bring together experts in the field, um, so uh, experts who, um, who work with supporting women overcome um, their experiences of domestic violence, also bringing together um, the experts that work with um, men who are using violence in intimate relationships to think about developing a treatment uh, model for them. And then also bringing in early intervention um, practitioners and experts to think about how to best support the development of um, young children. So the programme is a a two-year intensive program where these uh, three types of treatment models have been brought together and developed into a very comprehensive um, uh, treatment model um, which is currently being um, piloted with um, uh, groups, two teams in different settings um, in urban and a more rural setting in England um, and they are working with families where um, the mum is pregnant and the biological father is someone who's been using violence in the relationship and they do um, intensive therapeutic work with mothers and fathers separately. If it's safe to do so, at some point in the programme they might do some work together and then they're also looking at trying to um, help um, both mothers and fathers with their uh, interactions and relationship with their children because whether the program takes the approach that people may or may not want to stay together but they are both coming to the program because they want to be co-parents in the child's life and it's they're trying to develop 
a programme of work that will lead to um, ending the violence and improving the, 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 uh, the support and uh, for the emotional and, and physical development of uh, the children. And I guess with the ultimate aim of reducing the number of care proceedings that then have to be followed and children being removed because right from pregnancy we're, we're working with families, supporting families to try and prevent it getting to that, that point. I mean, it'd be interesting to see if that's something that could potentially be a future outcome for the project. Um, yeah. And the Lara project, could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so the Lara project is, um, Louise and I started that a few years back, and that's the model I talked to you about, about trying to bring together the domestic violence and mental health sectors to work you know, in conjunction to provide a holistic response to people who have mental health concerns and um, experience domestic violence. So it's a kind of reciprocal training model, but also a way of setting up a clear pathway to uh, a trained um, advocacy model um, with IDFAs that are competent in supporting people with complex mental health needs. We did some pilot work within the community teams that I mentioned earlier, and now um, Louise and I and my colleague Sean and some other uh, collaborators that we're working with and Emma in our group we're looking to try and um, do some work around uh, to working out how to upscale that um, to think about formally testing it on a bigger scale um, by thinking about what training packages we need to do we need to update that because it was a number of years ago we also, when we started, when Louise and I were doing the Lara project, that mental health professionals were talking to us about the fact that they also come into contact with um, users or, or have um, contact with people who are um, perpetrating violence in their intimate relationships or their close familial relationships, and they weren't sure how to think about addressing those issues. So as part of the works to extend on that program and roll it out on a bigger scale, we're also thinking about what kind of um, resources and support might staff need in, in, in picking up those elements of their practice and making sure that they are able to best support um, you know, both clients' needs around the domestic violence. Yeah, so really thinking about a whole family you know, approach, not just the response to the victim of domestic abuse but also thinking about how medical practitioners can can work with speak to perpetrators of domestic abuse as well yeah it's something that they see in practice you know they do they do work with users who have these um, issues of using violence and um, they're often unsure about where to direct people the same things about what their care pathways are what services are available um, how to best think about um, helping them to overcome those behaviours. So it's, yeah, we'll, we'll try to be doing, working within that programme to, to also concentrating on the best ways or promising models to address those things. Kylie, thank you so much. It's just been so fascinating talking to you and I feel like we could just set up camp at King's College because <laughs> there's so much good stuff going on here. We could just spend a week here like kind of finding out more about it all. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us as part of this Spotlight series and we'll make sure we include some links to your website and to the various kind of papers that you've been referencing. Thank you and it's a pleasure for me to be involved in this series because I draw on your Spotlight work in, in my 
my work. Um, and uh, it's, so it's a real honour. Thank you. Thank you.